everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, or it's a rejoinder episode, but in this case, we got a full length. Stacey Hardy is our guest this month. She was recommended to me by Megan Lamb, so you know the drill. If you liked that one, stick around for this one, and if you like this one, go back and listen to that one. Stacey Hardy is a writer, researcher, and editor whose work explores the intersections of embodiment, the individual, and society. Her writing has appeared in various anthologies and journals, including the New Orleans Review, New Contrasts, the Evergreen Review, Black Sunlit, and more. She's the author of the short fiction collection Because the Night and An Archaeology of Holes, which is out now from Bridge Books. Real quick before we get into the conversation, if you would like to help out the show financially, you can do so by becoming a member of my Patreon. Patreon.com slash NoisemakerJoe. For two bucks a month, you get these episodes a couple days earlier than everybody else. Or you can do a one-time donation over at paypal.me slash NoisemakerJoe. Or you can buy my book. It's called Tired. It's on Amazon. It makes a great gift for the people who love bummer books in your life as the holidays approach. If you don't have any money to spare, that is a-okay. I completely understand. You can just... Rate the show five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can tweet or blue sky post or mastodon trumpet or Instagram picture or whatever about it. Tell a friend, that sort of thing. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Stacy. And so the book is called An Archaeology of Holes. And... Um, you know, I feel like I feel like I've talked to a lot of poets on the show that people are going to start uh, saying uh, they're not going to allow me to get away with um, couching everything I say about poetry by saying I don't feel comfortable with it or know a lot about it. Um, but short story collections, I'm not quite there yet. So I'm gonna I'm going to say that when I go into a short story collection, um, I've read so few compared to novels um that it's um never quite sure um like what to do with the with the the text as a whole right um and um so i was thinking about the title and the thing that sort of really um, stood out to me, at least within the context of all of these stories, uh, is that a hole can be a lot of different things. Um, you know, there's, there's holes throughout this text. Um, and, um, you know, some, sometimes it's something missing. Sometimes there's something that's not supposed to be there. That's inhabiting a hole. Sometimes it's, physical sometimes it's emotional or spiritual sometimes it's kind of like national um and so i'm curious where if this was one of those things where you had a bunch of stories and kind of realized that they were all linked in this way or if it was i'm gonna do a project about holes um, it, it very much emerged without me being conscious. It didn't start as this is a book about holes. However, when I, so this is a 
previous reflection, it wasn't something that I set out to. But when I start to try to trace that, I suppose I can take it back to two entry points, which is a nice way of talking about holes. Um, maybe three entry points. The first entry point would be that as a child, I became obsessed with, in South Africa, the plug points for electricity are quite a bit bigger than the American ones. So that it's a different kind of electricity system and we have a three-prong plug with much bigger holes. And as such, they were the perfect size for my tiny little fingers. And I became obsessed with wanting to put my fingers into those holes. And to the point that my mother used to have to start to cover up hold in there because all I wanted to do the minute I saw that was to, to push my fingers in. So there's, I, I think I can I can trace an early infatuation back to the minute I see a hole, I kind of want to jump into it. I kind of want to push some parts of me into it. The holes have always seemed to me a bit like an invitation. Then when I first started writing, the first journal that ever published me was a South African journal that was called Donga. Now, a donger is a type of hole that you only get in South Africa. It's a name for a hole, a natural kind of hole in the environment, which is, I suppose, smaller than a, it's a natural kind of caving in that, that happens in the earth. And it's smaller than a, a kind of cavern or a, but it's kind of bigger than just a small hole. Um, so it's a, and, and. The, the, the literary journal described it as dongas are dangerous. Um, you can fall into them. They're places where waste collects. And the last line was that they're, they're a threat to the stable nation state. Mm. Um, you know, and so there was something about, I, I was always very taken by that description of holes possibly being threatening and spaces of danger, which I think we all sense to some extent, but then also this possibility that a hole could somehow erode the unity of the nation state, that it could be this kind of break where the earth, the, 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 the stable floor falls out, and this allows for other kinds of accumulation. Those things that you don't want is often what goes into holes. We dig holes to bury what's unwanted, what falls out of society. And I think especially within the, my context of growing up in an apartheid South Africa, which I rebelled against quite strongly, um, I was very fortunate that by the time I left school, apartheid was over, so to speak, although it has never really ever we don't really ever you know transcend these things which is why they say post-apartheid because it still contains the apartheid which is still very much there in the country but at least on a formal um governmental level apartheid was over but i think that sense of being an outsider of being the thing that gets thrown into a hole of being you know also of seeking refuge in that hole or then holes being somehow a place where those things we don't want the unwanted accumulates and i always the literary scene in south africa was always something of a hole of all these people who were thrown out of society and you found yourself with an immense diversity of different um rebels and loners and exiles and and that for me is an incredibly vibrant and generative space so that's the 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 second reference in terms of when I think through where did this obsession with holes start to come in. The third one is much more of a kind of intimate personal um, relationship with holes was that I contracted tuberculosis and it went undiagnosed for eight years. 
Um, this been a, a, a combination between that the testing at the time, the testing in South Africa was only um, was only done using um, a sputum test, which only picks up tuberculosis if it's pulmonary, which is in your lungs, which is the most common 98% of cases of tuberculosis are pulmonary. I, however, got what they call milital, which spreads through into your bloodstream first and then moves to other organs. So I didn't get it picked up. And the second one that being that it was in the contemporary situation, ironically, because it was always the disease of artists in, you know, kind of 18th century and 19th century Europe, it became, it's now globally kind of seen as a third world, a black disease. And as a, you know, kind of white woman, I was not seen as an obvious candidate. So it was much easier to say things like, oh, you're anorexic and a hypochondriac to mm -hmm. me then you have tuberculosis, which is what was said to me. And I vowed never to go back to the medical establishment after I left the doctor's office in tears. Um, and I didn't. So <laughs> I ended up having eight tuberculosis for eight years before it was finally diagnosed just because I had another accident and I had to go in for surgery. Now, TB, it's a disease that eats holes in your organs. So it literally eats holes in the body. And when I woke up after the surgery and I was told that I not only now had a new metallic shoulder after having shattered my shoulder, but I also had was inhabited by bacteria and I had a disease called tuberculosis, which was in both some ways wonderful because everything after years of being ill and being told there's nothing wrong with me, it was like, <laughs> it has a name, you know? Um, but, but so I went into doing a lot of research into tuberculosis and I can only describe it as literally, I went down the holes that had the disease had eaten in my bodies and I crawled down those holes. And when I came out, I found myself at the bottom of a mine shaft. Hmm. So the holes in my body led directly into the holes of the mining industry in South Africa, which is how tuberculosis was mainly spread. And one of the main reasons tuberculosis is um, endemic in South Africa to the extent that it is, that it's one of the main causes of death still in South Africa, despite being treatable, um, is because of the mining industry. So extraction economies and those holes in the earth and then I started to really realize this linking between the holes in the body and the holes in the earth and my own culpability in terms of as a white South African looking at my ancestry, the mining industry, extraction economies, and having to kind of query that um, that whole relationship and that relationship between health and the body and capitalism, that relationship between global networks, the fact that if you follow those mine shafts to the end point, you're going to end up in a Swiss bank somewhere. So all those kind of flows and those linkages via which, and I suppose to some extent, I started to see a bit of um, kind of a delusion, you know, this assemblage of things, you know, the mouth connects to the this, connects to the that, and suddenly you have these new assemblages of things that start to emerge. And for me, it was all via holes. It was via following this kind of tunneling almost. And very much my research process, I suppose, around that and, around dealing with the TB became very much a, a tunneling. And I have done work that deals more directly with that, but the, this book 
it's all over it, but it's nowhere overt. But questions around sickness, illness, holes in the body, unknown things, being inhabited by things, um, colonial histories and responsibilities, being a white in South Africa, all those things kind of do do conflagate. But but the book didn't set out with me going, I want to write a book about holes. I, I suppose I wrote short stories and interestingly, um, a lot of the genesis or when I think feel like I really started to find a voice was when I was sick. Most of these 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 stories are written quite post that. Um, I'd already been diagnosed and cured. Um, but you know, TB is also something that you're never quite cured from because you're left with the, the scar tissue and that kind of thing. So but but that was really, I think, a space. The space of sickness was it was literally one of those, it sounds like such a cliche, but the writing kept me alive. I wrote, I wrote myself to stay alive, um, you know, I, so in that way, and there was a wonderful point where I started to question how much I was writing and how much the disease was writing. I started to wonder if the author was actually the tuberculosis bacteria or me or who was doing the writing. And I developed such an intense, I mean, you spend eight years, you know, if you've just been in a relationship with somebody for eight years, you know how intense that is. Now, the thing that relationships actually in your body, it's even much more intense. So when I got to the point where they said, we're going to cure you, yes, the medication, I was like, but, but my TB, <laughs> you know, now I had a name, so I was calling it TB bacteria instead of thing, alien animal, all these other names I had called it before I had a name, which was tuberculosis. And I really questioned, you know, the disease was kind of going, don't kill me, don't kill me. How will you ever write without me? Um, and I really questioned that, you know, who was doing the writing? Um, and I, to some part of me always thinks that my, my stories are all co-authored by, you know, bacteria. Wow. That's fascinating. There, there's a, a couple different um things i want to touch on on with that um and I, I think kind of most presently with regard to like authorship and 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 the tv um a lot of conversations i see happening on the internet um have a lot to do with people kind of and mental illness and people being afraid that if their mental illness gets cured or under control, that they'll kind of lose a fundamental part of who they are. Um, and like my writing, at least in terms of output, like greatly improved the better I got because I like, you know, of course. but, but there was that, you know, there was that like, you know, er my earliest memories are of people yelling at me because I'm being too sad. Like, in my 20s, I can't fix that. That's a fundamental uh, yeah. part of who I am. Um, uh, so that's interesting that, that you know, a more sort of physical illness can elicit a similar anxiety and response. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's something I always think about this in terms, because I've thought a lot about this question of wellness and illness, and also in terms of mental health, like... You know, and, and I always think of the, what Otto said about that, you know, and he spent many years really battling severe, severe mental health and many years in asylums, um, underwent shock treatment. 
and his take on the writing and mental illness was that while you're in the grips of the illness, you actually can't write. Yeah. However, that transformation of having been through that illness is what in some ways engenders and allows writing. So you can never write from inside the madness. You have to somehow step outside of it to be able to write. But nonetheless, the writing would be radically different without it. And I think that's something what you're saying, because obviously it's much easier to write if you're in a space where you are weller. I mean, certainly just even on a physical level, it's much easier if you can actually stand and get to the computer and, you know, you're not racked with pain or, you know, discomfort or that kind of thing. It does make it easier. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there's, there's something in it that fundamentally, I mean, I, I often wonder about, you know, what one of the questions I've, I've kind of also asked is, you know, does a, does a sick body produce sick texts? What does a sick text look like? You know, what is that? And I do think it inflects us. I do think that those kind of states and those kind of experiences. Um, I have a wonderful poet friend in South Africa who is one of our, our very best poets in my mind, which is Mukulisi Niyezwa. And he firmly believes that no one can sway him otherwise. And unless you've had some great loss or some personal catastrophe, you will never be a poet. Mm. And he's terrible because he encounters all these happy young students and that. And he's like, no, sorry, you'll never be a poet. You haven't had enough loss or catastrophe or, or that to ever be a poet. I don't know if I'd be quite as extreme, but I do think that it's in some ways, yeah, does, does inform all of our writing. A thought that has been uh, kind of coming back in my head as I watch my little daughter pr play um, is like, I hope she never has to feel like she should become an artist. <laughs> it's like, I hope that she can just like grow up and have an interest and be like, I don't know, fish are cool. I'm going to go study fish or whatever. Um, well, I, I think the lines between being an artist and studying fish are a lot more kind of liminal than, than we, we open ourselves up to. I, I mean, I right. also think, I know for me, certainly a lot about my artistic identity is is refusing to let go of the child. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, I'm embracing my inner child or something, but 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 a, a, a real kind of objection to to wanting to grow up a fear i i still have deep fear of kind of wanting to grow up which is sometimes not at all healthy or very good for me or that but i just nonetheless do but also part of it is retaining that ability to play and i do think that it is one of the way to create imaginary worlds and I do think it is one of the great joys. And while I also, I mean, writing is never easy. It's always a struggle. But my God, there is nothing I would rather do. You know, um, I, I wish I could just just write, you know. It, it's, it's a space of also the most struggle and the most pain for me, but also the most absolute joy. And, and it amazes me. It's like, I get to do this. I get to, I get to, you know, play like this in this way create imaginary worlds and it's that that experience of childhood and that 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 sense of play that i think i i, I actually hang on to so maybe your daughter won't be too bad if she ends up being an artist <laughs> one can only hope i th i think the idea of plays is very important too um i tend to think that 
um, the people I know who remember their childhoods the best are, are, are some of the better people I know. I think there's something to that. Um, um, also, this is, this is sort of kind of in line too on the, on the, uh, bridge-chicago.org where your, where your book is, um, I, I saw the word autofiction and one of the, the things about autofiction, um, and I guess I, I, I normally think about it in regard to like men in their twenties or whatever, but like <laughs> the, this idea of becoming a method writer of, of people like living in squalor on purpose, putting themselves in, in, yeah, in, yeah. in dangerous situations on purpose in order to like, you know, get those experiences or whatever. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody what they can and can't do. And I'm certainly as, as big a fan of performance art as the next person, but I always, you know, I always worry about people's safety when, when it comes to writing what you know. Um, I think it's a dangerous line. I, I, I know that they certainly part in my book and possibly the parts that I find the most difficult to put into the world are those that are the closest, you know, and especially when they're recognizable other people um, within those, within, within the works, it's where I, I start to find it, um, yeah, in some ways the most, most kind of dangerous, I guess, because you're putting out your perceptions of other people, your feelings on other people in some way, and that's always kind of in, so, yeah, to a certain extent risky. I also, just riffing off that, I always think of Edouard uh, Levé. I don't know if you know the French writer. He wrote mm -hmm. Suicide and also another book called Autoportrait. In terms of autofiction, um, it's probably the book that his work has made me enormously excited about the potential of the genre. So I, I hear you on that that whole kind of genre of men in their twenties writing these "I'm living the life," and it was a very American thing. And I think less so in the immediate moment, but maybe like ten years ago, it was really huge, um, especially in America. And and I mean, some wonderful work was produced by that, but it also got that whole community. I think kind of collapsed into itself because things became too incestuous and and risky and dangerous. And I do think some lives were also lost within that space and that. But Levey's, in terms of innovation of what could the auto, you know, the life writing be, he, I really recommend you go look at that because I think it'll twist your, his, his books are quite insane and wonderful and completely consumed with the minutiae and he's very much a poet of that, although his language is absolutely deadpan and straight. Of course, the, the, his tragedy and in terms of that, danger of things is he wrote a book called suicide and immediately after it committed suicide um so that kind of danger is there and and yet at the same time while all the the troubledness of himself is it there's this incredible strange honesty he writes an auto portrait through the minutiae as opposed to the big stuff so mm. It's really a, a litany of minutiae, and he just builds the most fantastic books out of these absolute, seemingly mundane and incidental minutiae, 
almost to the extent that they override any bigger emotion or things. They're presented almost just as facts, very cold, deadpan, this is how it is. And but but stylistically really interesting writer. Do check him out. He'll give you new hope for, for auto fiction. <laughs> Wonderful. I I want only to to have hope for things. My my closest friends accuse me all the time of being an optimist and I bristle, but I'd love to be. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fervent optimist. I, you know, I, 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 for so, I, you know, I often think of it because I often think of it in, in the way that I, I don't know if you know Fred Moten, the, the, the poet, um, and he's kind of loosely been associated with the whole Afro pessimist kind of movement, and he's always you know people have called him the afro optimist because he's always kind of got the the optimistic slant on things and they want i once read an interview where, where they were talking about this you know um this, this antagonism between afro pessimism and afro optimism and fred said well look i'm just a happy guy i can't <laughs> help it it's my nature i i just tend to be a happy guy and i think i'm i'm kind of similar i i'm by nature just actually a happy person which is not to say I don't get incredibly sad and that but but there's something in my core being that that is is just really happy um so I can relate to that I think I think happiness and joy are are our greatest gifts for sure do you where do you think that comes from in yourself I also think it's something of a rebellion mm. I think I think that I've always, you know, I've constructed my half my life as rebellion. And I think that apartheid was, aside from its oppressiveness, it was such a dire, conservative, miserable fucking system. Everybody seemed miserable. You know, the state was miserable. There were these conservative politicians that would stand in front and wave their fingers at people and people dressed in incredibly conservative ways and the church was big and everything was so miserable and oppressive. And it's it's kind of made me very rebellious against forms of misery mm. and and unhappiness and this kind of pathological enforced unhappiness. Um, you know, and it, I think it, capitalism operates in a similar way. I think it kind of enforces this drudgery, um, and this, and that, so I think partially my my joy maybe springs from a space of it's a rebellious joyousness, like you know. But then I, it, I don't know. You know, I was just kind of born a bit of a happy person. I I I, I find a lot of joy in tiny things and in small things and. I'm also just I, I I I've often blown away by how lucky I've been in life um, that I get to meet the amazing people I meet and work with the amazing people I meet. I still feel a bit starstruck sometimes, you know. Like I, you know, I met Megan because I wrote her a gushy fan letter going, "But Megan, I'm I'm your biggest fan. I just love you." <laughs> You know, this is, you know, and then suddenly you're, you're hanging out and next thing she's editing my book. And I'm like, this is a dream. How did I, how did I fall into this just wonderful dream? And it, it's that that gives me just, you know, the, the amazing community of people. I'm very lucky to, to be in a literary community, to have a group of poets and that who I hang out with. And they're the most difficult awful people but my god they're also the most wonderful people and 
the opportunity to encounter such brilliant minds and to work on really exciting, beautiful projects. Um, and, you know, I, I do I do believe it, it matters. I can't let go of that. I, I, you know, and maybe it's also coming from South Africa where, you know, when people say, oh, but art and poetry does nothing, I'm like, fuck you, it freed our country. You know, and it really did play an active role. Without music, without poetry, there would not have been a free South Africa. So, you know, I do believe it changes shit. Yeah. Mm. And you, Joe, where does your joy come from? Um, I think I think for me it comes from trying really hard to love. Um, I I um in my mm, I must have been early 20s maybe late teens I I sort of discovered Zen Buddhism um as many young white men do and um <laughs> Shunryu Suzuki said something where he said that the sort of um basic nature of humanity is one of compassion um yeah. and so I kind of try to go strive toward that um and i i think when you love things it's easier to be patient with them and it's easier to not mind the things that people say you should mind you know if if a you know it's snowing all day today and you know some people really don't like that because it's cold it makes the roads dangerous it means winter's coming but also like freshly fallen snow at the beginning of the season when it's like just starting to hit the trees and nothing's like salty and muddy yet it's really beautiful um so i guess that's also why people call me an optimist huh because i choose to look on on the bright side of things but really it it's not it's not you know choosing one thing of the other over the other it's like trying to run toward things i enjoy and that's I've, I've talked about that in other places too, where it's like, that's kind of like my, my main thing, especially within art is like, I don't really do art criticism. I'm presented with, with a piece of media and I, I figure out how to love it, how to appreciate. I, I would agree with that. I, I'm not too sure what the point of, you know, going on about or spending time with something that, that doesn't give me that. So I also always do yeah. try to, you know, I always, when I, when I talk, when I, when I talk, sit in workshops or when I teach writing on any level, for me, it's always about the windows of opportunity, you know, like, okay, what, what, where are those windows of opportunity within a text? There's, you know, everything has something good in it. So, but what needs to be grown and nurtured and, and you know, where, where are the holes you need to dive through, you mm -hmm. know, and go somewhere else with, yeah. Um, that that does remind me the the thing about the holes um is interesting to me because it it felt very similar to how i how i do things right like you said you you start at the tuberculosis hole and you and you find your way in a mine shaft and then you find yourself in in some bank somewhere and um for for me i view it as webs um mm -hmm. and you know you brought up deleuze too i uh, the more I learn about fungus, the more I, I, I see things <laughs> in mycelial networks, um, yeah. which I suppose that's subterranean too, um, whereas right, a spider web is, is generally more kind of aerial. Um, um, but I, I, I like that parallel 
there that i i think what what i was getting at is 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 for me i find a hard time you know really falling down a rabbit hole i have i have a hard time kind of getting to the bottom of something because i'm constantly like you know i'd spend 15 minutes on wikipedia and i start at you know i start at stacy hardy and i i end at like some black metal band somewhere and i don't know how I got where I got. I think that's such an important part of, of you know, it's such an important part of a way to work. And it's, it's really my research methodology because I think that this very literal going and looking for something and finding it. And I also think it's what's getting lost in terms of the, the, the digital generation and the digitization of our life is that everything is pushed. So that, 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 that flaneuring through information, that going into a library and just browsing and you go looking for one book and that leads you to something else and then you see something else on the shelf and five hours later, you're sitting with a stack of books which includes everything except that first book that you were actually going to that where you've written down the number and you're going to go get that on the shelf. But I do think that that is how knowledge the most interesting knowledge is produced is via that kind of flaneurial and it's very much for me also kind of where writing is it's not like i set out to tell a story i'm not one of those writers who can mm. plan a story or plot it or i follow the story um you know and then and that's the beauty of it because it keeps surprising you and i think if i lost that element if i knew what a story was why would you write it you kind of write it to know what it is, um, and you 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 write to know what you know, and you don't research to find something. You research to, well, I mean, you do find stuff, but it's never what you wanted to find, you know. Um, and and yeah, so I, I love that method. I think it's it's actually the very very best um, research methodology one can have. Yeah. I agree. I think so too. Um, so how then do you start writing a piece? Like, is it an image? Is it a thought? Is it like a line? It's generally, I, I always, I mean, I think there are certain writers who have this experience and others who just don't, but I feel like I don't write my stories. I feel like I'm a transcriber. I listen to something in my head. There's a voice in my head and the lines just start to come. And my task, my role is to write them down. And it's very fucking difficult because the voice in my head, you think I speak fast. You want to hear the motherfucking voice in my head. It just <laughs> races along. And so it's this constant fight to try and follow, keep up with it. And, and very often it'll start doing it when you're not anywhere where you have a thing and then you're trying to write on your phone while you're trying to catch a train or um, it wakes you up in the night and you're lying there and you're just too tired to get out of bed to call to the computer. So you're trying to again scribble it on your phone and then you wake up the next morning and you're like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, so it's it's yeah I, I i don't really feel like i do the writing i feel like i transcribe something that speaks in my head and then i just follow it and then the, i suppose there's sometimes where i start it sort of lets go and i start to do something more conscious with it and then i go back and edit i generally 
pour everything out um, onto just onto the page as it comes, and then I'll start to craft, edit, follow lines, go deeper into things. I the greatest gift I ever had, the best thing I ever did for my writing was I stopped using Word. I, I can't write on paper. I'm too much of the digital generation already. I can't even read my own handwriting when I write. I've just lost all ability to do that. I, I live on screens much too much. But Word, I can't write in Word, not the first draft. So I use Notepad mm. um, because Word has comes with a rhythm. Like all these programs, and Word's quite slow and smooth. It's got this flowy kind of fucking thing. I'm not like that. I do this. I want to hammer the fucking keys. I sound like a mad drum, a metal drum solo, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I I must drive people mad who I have to live with me or be in a room with me writing. because I'm like banging it like I'm trying to kill the damn computer. And Notepad lets me go at that speed. It lets me be choppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that rhythm, it doesn't constrain your rhythm in the way word does. So the best thing I ever did was to get rid of word. And only I only ever go to Word on the last draft. Um, I'll go to a word processing program. But it also made me really aware of how much our, our, our very, even our fucking art is being controlled by, by, by programs, you know, what comes out. And I look at the smoothness of so much that's produced. I see it mostly in, in kind of digital art and design and that everything is glossy and smooth and everything flows beautifully. Um, and and that scrappy scribbly, which is much more of who I am, and 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 I and I started to realize, fuck, it's actually even dictating the software, even dictating the the, the rhythms in your writing. It, it, it you, you know, we've got to take back control from these things. You know, it's not just the fucking spell check, the tyranny of the spell check. It's rhythmic. It's it's aesthetic. It's how it looks. It's your font choices. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm I'm right there with you. I, for my first novel, I got this program called Scrivener because it didn't have page breaks, um, or you could choose to have a setting where it was just like a scroll. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I can't have the anxiety of being like, oh, I'm two At inches away of- from the end of the page. I have to keep writing or something. That's, that's, no, no, I do think these kind of constraints are, are, are very, very real. There's a wonderful South African artist, one of our great artists who was making work during the apartheid era. He's sadly um, dead now, um, Dumili Feni. And he has this absolutely magnificent artwork, which is a scroll. Mm. Um, and he literally made it by, by putting pieces of paper together, but it can go either way. It can scroll out and not. And it kind of flows with a series of images that flow into each other and text that accompanies it. And I've always thought it's something of a time machine. It lets you move forwards and backwards. Um, you can go either way with it. You know, that that scroll format. And um, there's something very, very magical in it. Absolutely. And and with that sort of following the voice as, as you're drafting, um, I identify with that quite a lot too um so i will ask you how do you edit like how does mm, i have such a hard time with it right so this is a selfish question this is less of like an interview question and more of like a please help me (laughs) question (laughs) 
I, I think you know I think editing everybody has their own kind of process and you have to find your I actually love the editing process for me it's very much around uh, it's where I can get into start zooming into little details and it's for me where I can also start to unsettle um things in the writing so it's kind of a thing of you know if I feel like there's a moment that needs to get played through or out or more and it's also where I sometimes start to do research and not often with the obvious thing it's also the point where I start to read a lot of philosophy because I found that that somehow reading philosophy at that point in time lets me kind of add a I, I mean not consciously it's not like I go looking for that thing that philosophical thing that but there's something about how philosophers write mm -hmm. that that always you know becomes a good time for me to be reading philosophy while I'm busy editing um, I start to, it's a point where I find those moments where I feel things need to be expanded or there's something that, 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 that allows me to go somewhere and I'll, I'll, I'll play it out a lot more. I'm a writer who finds a lot of joy with kind of like the obscurities of things. So going into the details of small obscurities and, and following thoughts through. Um, I also get very stuck and I can spend ages there with punctuation and sentence length and taking sentences apart and putting them back together and then thinking it should be a long sentence and then making it a short sentence and then so that kind of playing was trying to get the rhythm right um and it, the, the the horror of being so conscious of working rhythmically and that being so i think important for me as a writer i don't necessarily want to say that like my, my stories are very rhythmic or musical or anything like that because i don't think they need to be art oh, and there for me and the process is enormously important but it does mean i can't listen to music um when i write mm. um because it just affects me too much I, I i i struggle to listen to music passively i'm quite an active listener so it starts to its rhythms start to yeah so and and i love listening to music and i'm just about always either writing or working so it means i have to listen to music when i'm going for walks or you know outside or away from the house almost um, yeah yeah you have to set aside time for it yeah um so a a, a thing i i found when i was reading your wikipedia page and and this is sort of leading into one of the things we were talking about before I hit the record um, was the sort of, we talked a lot about collaborations with, with other non-human things, um, but you do a lot of work with other people. Um, and you're an editor at a Pan-African Journal. Um, you, you lecture all over the place. Um, you wrote a libretto. <laughs> um, so... Um, I guess I don't really know how to, how to lead into that question other than just sort of, I, I think now we should talk about, um, doing art with other people too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the Pan-African Journal is Chimurenga and I, I like to say I went to the University of Chimurenga more than I worked for, uh, you know, the Pan-African Journal. It's, it's really where I got my education, um. It's it's I I yeah it's a it's a learning space for me it's a space where I get to engage with wonderful other thinkers writers I'm I'm a person who's happiest if I'm learning stuff I love to learn um I I just love to be learning I think actually all human beings do when I look at kids 
kids love to learn and then the school system makes learning into something tyrannical and terrible but when you're little you just love to learn new things and I, that, it's something i've managed to retain i love to learn stuff and that for me you know to Marengo is really a space of of kind of education but i also always say to Marengo saved my life when i was i started working for them when i was very very ill with the tuberculosis and being in a community um, of people who were both pushing me very hard at a point where I was ready to just kill over and lie down and go, you know, I'm just going to die yeah, quietly. Um, people who were pushing me, but also pushing me intellectually, creatively, and then also lovingly. And to find myself in a family that was existing in that kind of space where there was space for friendship and love, but also, you know, people who were really kicking my butt and forcing me to go deeper. And I started working with Chimarenga because the first piece, very first piece I wrote to my editor, sent it back to me eight times and held up the whole publication of the journal waiting for my rewrite, mm. which was like the stress. Oh my God, I'm, I'm like stalling this whole editorial. Everyone, everyone is waiting for me. But that what a gift to have an editor that's prepared to work that hard with you to push a piece to take it somewhere else and that's the gift of Chamaranga. it's a group of people who just have always really pushed me outside of my comfort zone forced me to go further to go better to keep going um and i think that that's one of the great joys of friendships and the best friendships are those friends that, that yes of course love you and feed you tea when you need it um or you know those kind of things and are people to give you ginormous hugs when you need them but also those people who kind of push you to to think further and that's the joy of collaboration is the joy of learning learning other ways of doing things other ways of working other ways of thinking um, and been pushed um, often very far out of the comfort zone. The libretto, my God, I don't know if I've ever done anything difficult. Well, I said that was the most difficult thing I did. And then I tried to collaborate with the poet Daniel Bozutsky, who's here based in Chicago. Um, and, and he's my favorite poet, contemporary poet in the whole world. So that just gave me a complete fucking, I nearly had a nervous breakdown. I probably shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> I was going to have a complete nervous breakdown because it was just too much pressure. I was like, I'm not good enough. Um, but as as always, it pushed me. I learned so much. Um, and that's really, for me, the power and the joy of collaborating. I think writing will always be and has to be a lone pursuit. You've got to spend the time by yourself, sitting in your little room at your desk. You know, I always have this thing that I say to my friends that after midnight I turn into a pumpkin, so I'm sorry I've got to go before I turn into a pumpkin. And that's because there's just so much. I can't take a lot of sociability. I'm not actually a terribly sociable person. I'm very bad in social situations. And so I suppose in some ways the space I can be social, where I find my sociability is, is in working with people. Um, I also am too shy to say, phone somebody up and say, hey, do you want to hang out and go have some coffee? So I've developed this technique of doing this ridiculous thing of saying, do you want to do a work together? When all I really want to say is, do you want to hang out and go have some coffee? And the next thing you know, you're having to do this whole fucking project. And all you wanted to do was go for a cup of coffee. Um, but but my shyness, I, I don't know why, no matter how old or well, I know people 
to actually just reach out and say, can, can we go out tonight? Can we just hang out? I, I can't manage to do it. So I always have to construct something, some edifice with which to put that in. So it's a combination of those different things of the joy of being pushed and learning something and then trying to generate a system whereby I don't never ever see people to overcome kind of chronic shyness. And I think, you know, we all do. And in some ways, I, I could be completely projecting, but I imagine a podcast like this does something of that kind of work of, you know, how do you get to talk to people? How do you mm -hmm. get to meet people? Um, you know, because that, that, you know, I, I always remember it was such a revelation because I said to a friend once, but, but if you meet someone, what do you say to them? What do, what do you do? And they said to them, you say, you know, how was your day? I was like, oh, fuck, okay, that's easy. I can cry that. <laughs> I don't know. It, it never occurred. I, I, I lost, I missed that lesson somewhere along the line. Yeah. The podcast exists so that I can talk to people who I find <laughs> interesting. It's a good yeah, conceit. I, it's a good excuse. I, I do exactly the same thing. It's like, I, can I interview you? <laughs> can I, you know, it becomes a kind of a, yeah, um, have to create these artificial situations and in some ways that they're also wonderful because then it ends up being this whole thing and it has its whole life and it becomes a thing and then next thing you know you've gotten a libretto and next thing you you know so in that way um yeah and i also think that you know i think that there's a enormous one of capitalism's tools has been to create these these niches of forms and genres so you have music over there you have writing over here and they're different communities and the people who go to all the literary events don't go to the music event and then there's the art people and they go to all the art and then there's the theater people and it didn't used to be like this mm. you know this wasn't a given that you're a this person or a that person people used to the communities were very enmeshed at, at many other times in history, very much in South African history. Um, everyone was hanging out together. So it's also, I suppose, some way to try and break what I see as, as a conspiracy of, of kind of division. And I, I think that it very much is that, that kind of putting people into little um, genre boxes and refusing to connect them um, or constructing a world that way. Um, I, I do think it's part of the way capitalism man, maintains control over things. And so part of it is also that rebellion against it. I love music. I want to work with musicians, you know? Um, yeah, it's it kind of all kind of jumps from that kind of point of departure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's something I I feel like I remember hearing about or like watching movies about like a beat poet or something is that there was that sort of like Dungeons and Dragons sort of thing where it's like we have our painter and our poet and our novelist yeah, and our yeah, playwright yeah. and we're all yeah. hanging out together. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was very much the scene in South Africa. Now South Africa is also step, stepping into this kind of very much this capitalist move where everything gets divided out. But, you know, there used to be in every township had an art center. And that was just an art center. It was where everybody got together and the writers and the poets, and they were all finding ways to collaborate, put you hanging out, um, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I love music and I love art. So 
I, I want to kind of also bring those things in, you know, um, and a lot of my writing is deeply inspired by music and by art. Um, so, yeah, so I think those boundaries, I think we have to be more more active in actually setting out to break those boundaries because I think that they're, they're false boundaries. Yeah, I think so, too. Hmm. My my mind's in a different place now. One of the things my friends and I daydream about is like creating a third space, right? And the idea of art-centered seems so obvious, but hadn't been sort of placed on the on that daydreaming uh, space. And so now I'm just thinking of like, oh yeah, we could have people donate oil paints and then just have them out because they're expensive. Um, but that that is a huge digression. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a digression. I, I don't think it's a digression at all. I think that those kind of practices, which are also spaces of play and those spaces where one can kind of create. And, and you know, you you talk about that construction of thirds. And I think that, that that space of kind of thirds and fourth worlds and that is really, really important because we, we live in such a binary constructed space mm -hmm. but there's always a third there's always the, the that 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 escapes that exceeds you know the, and actively constructing those third spaces um outside of these easy ready binaries i think are really really important i i think that you know one one has to work to to make these things happen yeah um Yeah, uh, I, I want to make sure that that we that we do name um, some of the people that um, you wanted to make sure that we named with regard. Okay, to yeah, I, I guess I I, I I was saying I was as I was saying to you before we hit the record button. I don't think books are ever actually you know there's one author name on it, but I I think you know books are are not constructed by one person. There's always a lot of people that are involved in in the making of and in the birth of any book. So, and I would just like to say that my name is, and hence I'm on this podcast and no one else, but this book carries with it a lot of people who've, who've you know, been pivotal in it. My great friend, the poet, Lesechoron Paula Keng, um, who has just been an enormous inspiration on me um, and who's also always pushed me further and interrogated me and shouted at me and has a true belief and has managed to retain a true belief in the power of poetry and the power of word as a transformative and as a political and has never sold out. So when I find myself doing something, I think, oh, God, you're, I mean, it's not so corny selling out. <laughs> But a refusal to be to to change anything to comply with a system or to produce something because it's what a system would like or to say something because it's what would get you further in a system. He's always someone who's rebelled against that. So it set a very high par for me where I can often go, oh God, Lucero would see you now and kick you. And then you have to, you know, write yourself in that. So also just in terms of being a, an ethical um, standard to hold myself to and then just also an amazing amazing writer and player with words so if anyone is listening and you haven't read Lesejo Rompola King go look him up um, the other person I'd like to shout out was Bogani Corner who really without this collection would not exist because it was actually during COVID and I had so many stories put together and 
you know, I was saying to Bogani, God, I've got so much writing, I really should do something with it. And I just did nothing and I did nothing because, you know, these healthy things go and I don't know what to do with it or how it is. And Bogani went, right, send me everything you have. And I sent him everything he had and he very sweetly told me which bits had to be thrown out, which bits belonged together and put everything together and said, okay, you've got a starting point now. And, you know, without that kind of recognition, I would have been too self-effacing to it's not good enough have god you know you know we do this oh it's mm -hmm. terrible no this is so shit uh, and i'm sure it's also just a defense mechanism because we're so terrified of failing or fucking up that it's easier just to if we ourselves say that it's terrible but then i often do look at my shit and i just think oh my god how can you have done something that terrible anyway so without him um I would never have been brave enough to even put this all together and say it could be out there. So Bogani Kana, um, Robert Barold, who's a fantastic runs a publishing company in South Africa, Deep South Publishing, and just has been an amazing force of wonder. My dear friend Tamara Gers, who always provides a bed over my head, is my longest collaborator and always stands by me and also always kicks my butt, but also gives me a lot of strength. Then my American in Chicago family, Lily Hoang, who very generously wrote a very beautiful blurb for this, Daniela Profunda, who did the same. These are um, fellow writers who I managed to encounter years back in my journey and have just been enormously supportive in trying to get this book out there. Megan Lamb, who led me to you, Joe, so I will thank her for that, but also who was a, an amazing editor on this book. Megan amazes me because she manages to be absolutely meticulous and in terms of ticking boxes and in terms of 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 that and then just to be this wild imagination at the same time and how does somebody manage to be this meticulous and and absolutely careful and caring with things and yet so wild at the same time. And then she just looks impeccable and gorgeous on top of it. She manages to do all these things and she manages to look both absolutely perfectly presented and ravishingly wild. And I just don't know how she holds all those binaries together, but Megan somehow manages to do this. Um, then um, Daniel Buzitsky, who um, is a wonderful, um, I think in my mind, one of the very best poets um, that America has at the moment, he's from Chile, so you can't completely claim him, but, um, but, but, but he does live and work and was, you know, is, is out of this country and he's just producing the most amazing poetry. I think he's just really innovating things and, and, and in terms of form. So Daniel, who I must shout out, Kaushik Sundarajan, who is, the reason I'm in Chicago in the first place, I'm, I've been working with him on a long-term project exploring the poetics and politics of breath. Hmm. Um, and then there's an amazing space in Chicago, which if you're in Chicago ever, you have to go to, which is Elastic Arts. Um, so Adam um, Zanandelli um, and the whole Elastic Arts community, um, which has become the place I go when I want to listen to music. And really, it was the first place I got comfortable being able to travel to. And Chicago's not an easy city to get around. Oh, yeah. So still the places I most often is I'm really mostly either at home, at Chicago University or at the University of Illinois, or I'm at Elastic Arts. Those are really the only four places you will ever find me in Chicago. <laughs> um, so Elastic Arts, it's an experimental 
predominantly music space, but they also have poetry, they also have art, and the space of improvisation, um, a community space, and just the most amazing music you're going to hear um, comes out of that space. Chicago's got a long tradition of, I suppose, what's called jazz, but this kind of an improvised music and experimental music. And that is the space where the new shit is coming from. So, yeah, so the whole community there who, who've given me lots of joy while I was in Chicago. Mm, I love it. I love it. I, thanks to the podcast, I have, I have some connections to Chicago. So it's not that far of a drive, which, which is nice that uh, I now have another place on my list. Where are to. you based? I didn't actually even ask that. Yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. Okay. No, they're like not too far. I don't think. It's yeah, no, it's, it's like three so hours. Three-hour yeah, drive. Okay. Yes, not 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 a bad drive at all. I was just in Chicago, um, God, a week or two ago. Um, just went to visit a friend for a day trip. But yeah, um, drive. Well, next time you can absolutely go to Elastic. Just, uh, it's one of we were talking about play. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few spaces that I've seen that are brave enough to open up performance space to just play. Mm. So they have kind of improvised sessions where people really are just playing. And of course, as always, when one plays, the most amazing shit comes out of that freedom of just being able to play. Um, but then, the, you know, sometimes it's a complete fuck up and elastic, it doesn't matter. You know, there's, there's a space that's kind of loving and open enough to hold that there are going to be moments of where it's just not going to work and it's not going to hang together. That's fine because there'll be moments of absolute sublime brilliance as well. And you've got to have both. There's a wonderful Zimbabwean writer, um, Dambudzo Marachera, and they asked him where he was from. Um, and he said, I'm from the country of poets. And I do think that there's something... And of course, it's generalization, but I, I do struggle to find writers that I don't in some way like. I do think there's a country of writers, and I so often find someone who, who are people who have all my own same pathologies within writer communities. It's like, okay, it's not just me, sure. Huh. I won't say too much by way of introduction to the story because it's something of a mystery story. And um, yeah, it would be to give the mystery away if I do introduce it um, too too vividly, but just to say it's called Involution. It was also a short story that was nominated for the Kane Prize. Um, and in, so in some ways is my most famous stories in some circles. Um, Kane Prize is a prize for African fiction. Um, yeah, so I'll just take it away with that and unveil the mystery and never solve it. Involution. When she first discovers the thing, she reacts with fright. It isn't just its outlandish appearance, but also its proximity. Why, considering all the suitable nooks and crannies, the possible hidey holes in the vicinity, has it chosen her? In truth, she might not have noticed it if it wasn't for the itch, at first barely noticeable, more like a humming, a low-level vibration somewhere in another region, then louder, more insistent. 
Eventually, she has no choice but to give herself over. She makes her way to the bathroom, shuts the door, and strips down. Sits on the toilet, lit down, kicks shoes off and peels leggings, bum balance, led akimbo. She has trouble discerning. She has trouble discerning anything. It isn't so much that the thing is well hidden, as it is that its very form resists EV definition. Much about it is familiar, its colour, pinkish-brown, its jowls and dugs, its convex shape. All these things are easy to describe, but how they are assembled evades easy logic. Her first reaction, to snap her knees shut, get dressed and pretend she has seen nothing. She tries to calm herself, to breathe. She usually isn't scared by strange animals or creepy crawlies. She grew up outside the city, a semi-rural area known for its biodiversity. Her childhood was spent collecting worms and beetles, chasing after frogs and meerkats. It's only recently that she moved to the south, a coastal metropolis. She tells herself the thing is probably like her, some poor rural animal that has strayed from its natural environment. It's nothing to be afraid of. After all, there must be all sorts of species and subspecies she's never encountered before. Small mammals alone come in a number of varieties. There are rodents and tree shoes and moles and hedgehogs and sedonas. And each of these categories has its own variant and deviation, its smallest incarnations. When the pamphlets on mammals and reptiles that she obtained from the local parks board reveals nothing, she extends her search. It's possible that the animal is not from these parts, not indigenous, as the books call it, that it's an alien or an immigrant. Cases like this are documented all the time. On the internet, she reads stories of vervet monkeys and miniature hippos smuggled across borders, a rare snee snake, usually only found in the waters of Mauritius, pops up in an aquarium in a restaurant in Lower Manhattan. A cat travels aboard a research vessel all the way to Antarctica. She tries Google, but it yields nothing. The problem is her search terminology. She has difficulty finding the language to describe the thing. It's hairy, but the hair is neither long nor soft. It isn't furry exactly, but it seems to have a sort of fuzzy quality, a kind of fluffy pertness that could be considered cute under the right circumstances. Mostly though, it's ugly. Its hair stands up in shadowy tufts, framing a sad little naked face that might have resembled a puppy had it not been so bunched up, so awfully scrunchy. She feels almost sorry for it, a warm prickling in her stomach no wonder the thing is hiding, a tiny, lonely Frankenstein creature with no protection from the outside world. She clicks a link and finds herself looking at pictures of rabbits, Bugs Bunny next to the white rabbit from Alice, a man-sized cyborg rabbit ghost from some movie she doesn't recognize. The final picture isn't of a rabbit, but rather a man covered with bees from top to toe. The picture is titled Bee Man. She stares at the photo and then the caption. Something about it, the combination, makes her stomach knot. 
what is the relationship between bees and rabbits and the man and bees? And is the captain is the caption meant to suggest a new species, a coupling of man and instinct into a vibrating human swarm? She thinks about evolution, ape skulls, and how human embryos have an extra jaw that fades back into the skull early in development. She bites down hard, clamps her teeth shut against the memory that rises. She considers that the thing might be some type of mole, it seems to be blind, or rather, if it has eyes, she has yet to see them. At least anything that resembles eyes she's seen in other animals, the hooded eyes of lizards, the soft brown eyeballs of cows, the Odyssean beads of rats, the cat eye, fish eye, eagle eye, each so distinct. But sometimes the eye is not an eye. Seeing without perceiving, for example, sight is an act of creation. In addition, there are all sorts of species that are eyeless. A quick search reveals cave wolf spiders and sea urchins and all types of shrimps and salamanders. Most of them are underwater dwellers. But she is more sure more will appear as she searches deeper, if she delves into underground caves and abandoned mine shafts that litter the local landscape. Later, Looking at a blind, naked mole rat, she thinks that maybe her thing is some sort of hybrid. She has read reports and seen pictures. Genetic modification is leading to all sorts of permeations. At the shop, she buys cherries um, the size of pawpaws, an orange with edible peels, and a new fruit that combines a pomegranate and an apple. The fruit is expensive and ultimately disappointing. It lacks the apple's crunch or the pop of pomegranate rubies. She remembers a vegetarian friend who warned her that they were already breeding chickens without wings and limbless cows. Picture it, just a central match, the cow torso a trunk, clumped and inert. Could it be her creature is such an experiment? She thinks about how pearls form in an oyster or how a tumor grows in a body, a clump of cells without differentiation, and then a creature. She imagines its beginning life as a small ball of tightly clumped, packed radioactive flesh, rising itself up from the bottom of some medical waste truck, swimming through the debris of polluted biological matter, swarms permeated with discarded waste of every living process, emerging its body limp, face exposed, hauling itself onto the tarmac, the hum of sliding liquid, the sucking sound that makes it, it drags itself towards her. Her bladder feels hot, tight. She closes her laptop, head throbbing, and walks to the bathroom, pees without looking, holding her legs clamped together. She listens to the sound of piss on water, Sits like that a while and slowly spreads her thighs, peers downward and gasps. The creature seems to have grown. Its features are more distinct, more pronounced now. A shadow goes through her. She quickly balls up some toilet paper, touches the wad lightly to it. The paper comes away wet, but she's no, no way of knowing if it's her pee or if the creature exuding liquid 
She recoils, hurriedly pulls the pants up, flushes, holding the handle down until the paper completely disappears. She considers her relationship with the thing. What is she to it? Is she a friend, a habitat, a home, or a safe holder, a space of refuge, somewhere warm and secluded away from the city, like a hole or, or a nest? But if she's a nest, then is an animal nesting? creating a safe space so it can breathe. Thought drops down to her stomach, hangs there a moment, then births a cluster, an army of tiny speculative replicants of their mother with pink crinkly faces and tufts of soft downy hair that scramble in her belly. She touches a hand to the stomach, wonders what would become of them once they're fully grown. Where would they go? She doesn't have space to house them. The enclave between her legs is really the only private nook of her body. And this, of course, one counts armpits. But surely they are exposed countless times every day, in everyday activity and lifting and carrying and calling for attention. She lies awake in bed, her senses on high alert. The room is filled with shadows, monsters hiding under the bed, ghosts that run lights across the ceiling. The shadows in the room are still when she fixates on them, but when she looks away, they move subtly in the corners of her eyes. They're breathing, she thinks, and closes her eyes and opens them an instant later. She is sure as soon as she sleeps, the creature will awake, begin some kind of secret nocturnal creaturely activity. She tries to lie very still, to hold her body inert. Her limbs are heavy and tacky with sweat. She listens. Finally, when nothing happens, she reaches down. Her hand gropes under the sheet, slides into her panties. It seems somehow less scary and she folds her hand over it. Initially, it's warm, almost body temperature. But as she pushes down, she feels it grow, swell, grow hot and descended. Immediately she pulls back, uncertain if she's somehow smothering it. She waits a while before she hands slides her hand back down, this time cupping it gently so its little hairs tickle her palm. She falls asleep like that, her hand between her leg, mouth open, saliva gathering at the corners. In the morning, the bed has a sweetly fetid smell and the sheets feel damp. She boils them up and throws them in the laundry. In the shower, she scrubs her scalp down. She uses a disinfectant soap that she usually only reserves for the kitchen. She scrubs her armpits and her breasts, washes under her feet between her knees. She rubs a bar of soap between the lips of her crotch, sliding it up and down to the groove of her asshole. She rubs back and forth until her arms ache from reaching and the crotch burns. She repeats the motion until her thighs are red, splotchy from rubbing. Positions herself, positions her body so the hot water scalds her stomach and streams down between her legs. She should take action, report the animal. But to whom? Should she go to a doctor? That's where you go when you need a tapeworm removed. But her creature is not a tapeworm, and she has no indication that it's parasitic. It does not suck sustenance for a body, at least not as far as she can tell. She certainly hasn't lost weight recently or experienced any undesirable symptoms. 
no hair loss or broken nails to indicate a vitamin deficiency. If anything else, she looks rounder since the thing arrived. Her breasts seem heavier and firmer and her cheeks have a new sheen. If the thing isn't feeding off her, then what does it eat? The question unsettles her. The idea the thing could be eating, but of course it must eat. What else would it use, use for of the mouth? She thinks, she, what if she, what she thinks is a mouth, a thing, the thing doesn't seem to use it for sound. It's very quiet, unnaturally so. Since the initial itch, itching, she's heard nothing. She listens intently. The silence unnerves her. She conducts several experiments. She wets her fingers with different things. Fruit juice, honey, the bloody effluence of a steak she buys at the butchery. She unbuttons her pants and rolls down her panties, slides a finger between her legs, angling along the thing's surface until she reaches a small hole of its mouth. In each case, the response is the same. Nothing, not an itching or twitching. No change she can gorge in the thing's temperature. She pours a source of milk and balances it on a small bench and sinks her buttocks into the cool liquid. She sits like that a while, motionless, the pink and dark flesh of a creature submerged. Finally, she stands, the milk dripping down her thighs. She examines the saucer, but there's only a small change in the water's level, probably caused by displaced milk that now pools on the tiles below her. It's cold inside the Natural History Museum, quiet. She spends hours wandering the hallways, lingering in front of stuffed lions and hyenas, an ethnographic display featuring koi sand hunters, passers by snakes drift in jars of formaldehyde, petrified insects embedded in stone. The display cases are giant aquariums emptied of water. She stares at the predatory jaws of a coelacanth, an ancient bottom-dwelling fish who, that was believed extinct until science found it at the mouth of the Chinooma River. The locals laughed at the discovery. How can something that's always been, lived long amongst us, be discovered suddenly? She runs her fingers along the glass case surface, stares into the fish eyes, its ravenous mouth, traces the snapping, uh, with the snapping urgency of its teeth, feels a welling in her stomach as a museum guard approaches her. Can I help you? Is there something specific you're looking for? She shakes her head, just looking. The guard's presence makes her nervous. She imagines a creature would be quite, would be quite a fine for a place like this, an institute or a research center. For the first time, she thinks of the thing's worth. She goes to the information desk and asks a price tag attached to rare animal displays. The stuffed rare ravine rabbit, or the Ethiopian rupe, say, or the hairy dwarf lemur from Madagascar. The woman doesn't understand the question. She's just a help desk jockey, trained to dispense brochures and pinpoint areas on the map. She points the girl to the curio shop but she has no interest in curios. Walks in the direction indicated so as not to arouse suspicion. She buys a bottle of water and a plastic bat on sale as part of some focus on cave-dwelling animals. 
One's outside, she wonders if she chose a bad because she sees an affinity between it and her thing. She thinks about her body and its caverns and sinkholes. She resolves to keep her thing secret, to tell no one, certainly not anyone involved in the study of science. After all, it doesn't seem to be doing any harm. It demands so little, doesn't need to be fed, and it makes no sound. As far as the world, the rest of the world is concerned, it doesn't even exist. As if to prove this to herself, she phones a man she met at a party when she attended when she first arrived at the city. The man, if she remembers correctly, was introduced as working in wildlife conservation, some sort of research into endangered species. She dials his number and says, I don't know, I, I was just thinking of you. He seems flattered. How about a drink sometime? She has, has little contact since discovering the thing and is afraid that it might somehow show be visible to others. She wears an old pair of black jeans that keep everything neatly tucked in with riding too close to her skin, too, too near to the panty line. The restaurant where they meet is crowded. They find a table squashed in the corner and face each other. As it turns out, she was wrong about the man's field of yes expertise. Yes, he's in conservation, but he's mostly concerned with legislation. His background is legal. She tries to focus while he tells her about a case study he's working on, examining some recent trade agreements with Chinese shipping companies that affected Palamun um, population in local waters. He tells her about the plight of local fishing communities, the tiny motorized fishing boats that carry pirates, armed gangs that run illegal Palamun trade. The word pirate catches her attention. She feels a shudder. It's as if the setting or the man or what he's saying has upset the thing. She doesn't know how she knows this. It isn't so much a feeling or as a sudden twitching, a sort of pull itch that makes her arms slide across her belly and hug her tight. She wiggles in a chair, overtly aware of the sucking sound her bottom makes on the seat's vinyl cushion. Eventually the pressure is too much. She excuses herself and rushes to the bathroom. Her bum hugs the toilet bowl, pants down around her ankles. Her panties are slightly damp, not wet exactly, like she peed them, more of a clammy, clotted, a viscous substance. Her mouth is dry. Could be there be something wrong with this creature? Is this how it bleeds or maybe weeps? She's overcome with a flush of emotions. It starts in her stomach and radiates out through her whole body. It's filled with warm, fuzzy things. She reaches down and gently cups the thing. She begins to stroke it very slowly, then faster. The thing grows caught under her touch. She feels its warm mouth open. The liquid excretion is saliva, not blood. It coats her hand, stringy tendrils that seem to pull her deeper. She slides a finger in, just one, then another. She roots around, scratching at the top, the soft yielding sides that bold when pried. She pushes harder, discovering a funny sound made by squishing the walls in. She starts to laugh. Her body tingles, her skin shudders and her jaw trembles. The thing pulls tight, spasms into a hard knot and then goes slack and everything becomes indistinct. 
the air is hot and thick and she sits on the toilet breathing. Thing is quiet. Her belly is flat, relaxed. She stands slowly, legs shaky beneath her, wipes herself off, cleans her panties with toilet paper. At the small enamel basin, she avoids the mirror, washes her hands twice, drives them under the hot steam of air from the electronic hygiene dryer. At the table, the man is drumming his fingers. They sit in silence. She saw his face, her face is flushed and she looks down to avoid his gaze. Finally, look, she looks up. Do you have any pets? She doesn't know why this question. He shakes his head. He doesn't like the idea of animals being domesticated. He says something about corrupting the animal spirit. She says, and cockroaches? Cocks her head and watches his face. Obviously, he doesn't get it. She's trying to explain that there is no urban or rural divide anymore, no pure, incorruptible nature. She asks him to try to imagine dogs before they were domesticated, or rats in the wild, or pigeons in jungles. All of them, the pigeons, seem the most unimaginable to her. They seem so stupid and placid. She hopes the thing never becomes like that, docile and dependent. She likes its wildness, its skittishness, how it cowers below her, seemingly afraid of the light, the hard air. She slides her hand between her legs under the table. Her thighs are hot. When the waiter comes, she orders steak. The man orders grilled lionfish. I don't eat red meat, he says, as if needing to explain. She watches him slice carefully into his fish, and take the bones out. The meat is pale and flaky, gives easily. The spine comes out clean. He impales it with a fork, brings it to his lips. Between bites, he talks about problems with the Chinese shipping industry, certain practices, sharks brought up to in their nets, their fins ripped, thrown back, still living, to sink like stone. She watches him eat and thinks sharks do not have bones only cartridge. The thought makes her seal sick or leak something like seasickness, that same lurching. The smell of the man's food is suddenly overpowering. She can see his jaw moving, a deafening noisy around her, the sharp sounds of metal, porcelain, high-pitched voices. <sighs> Outside is raining likely. She declines the man's offer for a lift. She wants to walk, to be outside, to feel the air and water on her face. She walks quickly. In the distance, she can see the silhouettes of the cranes of the harbors against the sky, the lights of the ships far out in the sea. The wind drips through her and blows her hair in her face. She is soaked when she gets home. She decides not to phone the man again, pushes him out of her head. But that night, he keeps coming back. She thinks of the fish dish in front of him, of him eating, then talking, of his lips opening and closing, the spine left on the side of its plate, its spikes, serrated edges. She goes to the bedroom and undresses slowly. She sits at the center of the leg of the bed and spreads her legs. Heart beats quickly as large red spotches spread across her thighs. She breathes, reaching down, feeling a quiver. The stirring grows so strong as if her insides are tiny animals gnawing and scratching the walls of her body. 
She runs her fingers across her skin, the creature's skin. The mouth feels like a wet cave under her touch. She wants very badly to stick her finger in. She peels open the lips. Very wet suddenly, lubricated, so her index finger slides in easily. The whole thing heaves as she penetrates it. Goes in with three fingers, pushes deeper, rocking and thrusting. In that moment, she realizes her understanding of the animal has been very limited. What she took to be the body, the bulk of the thing, is really only a centaria. Very just below is another whole excavation, an animal hold out or, or tunneled inside out. It's not clear if it's mammalian or reptilian or amphibian. It could be a fish or a plant. It has no bones or perhaps she just can't feel them. Its muscles or what might be muscles are coiled in spasms that knot and loosen as her hand strokes them. Its skin is hot and wet, a mucous membrane covered with a thin layer of slime. It doesn't make a sound, but as she thrusts deeper, she comes aware of a vibration, low and metallic, like the hum of insects, a soft buzz and a pitch human ears shouldn't be able to hear. She listens closely, tries to imagine the shape of what's inside her. She navigates like a bat, sending out signals. Does it go on indefinitely? Does it have many parts, chambers like a heart? Is it continuous or are its parts cut off from other parts, sealed away, unreachable and silent? Are its parts solid, defined, or do they simply take on the shape they inhabit like liquid? In that moment, she thinks she smells it, to smell like fish, like seaweed on the beach in the morning. But after a time, she cannot remember the smell, or the seaweed, or the morning. Her ability to compare anything with anything else is slipping. There's nothing to compare. She and it are no longer separate creatures.